Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. From keeping our personal relationships happy and healthy, to dealing with group projects at school, to all kinds of interactions in the workplace, we're all managers to varying degrees. And we all participate in teams, large and small, most days. Many of us have been fortunate enough to be on a really great team. And most of us have probably been on a bad one. So what makes for a great team, whether personal or professional? And is it just as simple as being good at your job, or is there more to it than that? To help us answer that question, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we're welcoming a very special guest to the show, one of the world's leading scholars on what helps organizations learn and thrive, Dr. Amy Edmondson. Amy is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, where she studies teaming, psychological safety, and organizational learning. She's the author of six books, including her most recent book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. So, Professor, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? You're very welcome, and I'm, I'm doing as well as can be under the circumstances, which is, which is pretty well. I think <laughs> I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah, it's an increasingly loaded question these days. Uh, back when we were doing these conversations before the whole pandemic started, <laughs> I would ask that question and people would give kind of a normal, maybe sort of trite response, oh, I'm doing good. But these <laughs> days, it's a little bit tougher. So I'd love to start by defining some concepts for people, uh, maybe starting with psychological safety, which is such a important part of your work. And as you know, back in 2015, Google finished this massive four-year internal study on what made for an effective team, and they identified five key factors. Uh, the first four are pretty traditional, dependability, structure and clarity, meaning, and impact. Uh, the fifth and most important one was psychological safety. So this is a big, important topic for organizations. Great. Okay. And, and it is Google's study is a truly amazing study that actually motivated me to write The Fearless Organization because mm. I had been studying psychological safety for 20 years, not as a full-time activity. I, my primary interest was teams and organizational learning, but never occurred to me that there would be that much interest in this topic until the Google study. So I'm, mm. I'm eternally grateful uh, that that happened. So I, I, I define psychological safety as a shared belief that the environment is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. And what's an interpersonal risk? Well, it's, it's speaking up with a question or a concern or a mistake or an admission of weakness. So anything, anything for which others might judge you harshly. Um, and, and are you, do you feel that that's easy? Do you feel that's possible? Or is that something that um, your strong inclination will be to hold back? If so, that's a lack of psychological safety. That's interesting. So people experience within themselves, whether they feel safe or not, then related to that, there are beliefs about how safe they are. And then there's a group level where there's a commonality of this. There's a shared belief right. as it were. And what are some of the factors that promote this really great result inside teams? Uh, factors of what people can do themselves and particularly what leaders can do in teams that create and foster this quality of psychological safety? It's a great question. And I, I feel I have to back up a little bit and say, as 
listeners can probably imagine, it's not the norm. I mean, I think psychological safety, particularly in the workplace, is not the norm. It's not to be taken for granted. In fact, I would say most workplaces aren't particularly psychologically safe. And, and by most, somewhere above half are probably not psychologically safe. So what is it? You know, so when it, so that means when it's present, it's generally the case that people have done something, particularly managers have done something to make it so. And uh, I think the most uh, important things, the most important thing to do is to always, you know, just keep on talking about the nature of reality. Now that sounds funny because I don't, I don't mean that in the cosmic <laughs> I'm sense. I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't mean it in the cosmic sense. I mean it in, you know, in most, in, in, in most organizations, the work that people are doing is subjective, complicated, novel. I mean, you know, there's, 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 there's a fair amount of uncertainty and there's a fair amount of challenge and there's a lot of interdependence. Like we can really go into that one. I mean, there's a, there's just a, um, a much higher level than ever before that I can't just go in and do my job and everything will be fine. You know, we must kind of work together in a, in a, in a coordinated, thoughtful way to do our job. So that's, that's the nature of reality. And so the two, the two features of reality are most, I think are most powerful to talk about are uncertainty and interdependence. And mm. so the degree to which team leaders, managers are just making it okay and making it explicit that what we face and what we're trying to do here um, is, is uh, enormously unclear. I mean, or, you know, and, and some jobs are obviously more unclear than others, but that you don't know exactly how the customers will react. You know, in the in the case of the pandemic, we don't know when this will end. You know, we don't we don't know uh, what organizations and customers and wh what it's all going to look like when when we get through it. So, acknowledging uncertainty and acknowledging interdependence sort of gives people at least the the semblance of a rationale for why their voice might be needed. Uh, maybe a simpler way to say what I'm saying is just uh, kind of routine comments like, I might miss something I need to hear from you, or we're up against mm. an immense challenge. Anybody's ideas might be mission critical. So, because I think if you don't set the stage by making clear that there's a really a rationale for why I welcome, I, you know, I welcome your voice, then the default is to think I probably should just shut up. So Amy, one of the things that I really started learning when I was delving into your work and your book, The Fearless Organization, is that um, my first assumption about psychological safety was that it was essentially a personality factor, or it had a big part of it that had to do with individual variation in personality. Um, much as some people are naturally more extroverted, maybe some people were naturally just like felt more psychologically safe. In other words, some people probably just felt more comfortable speaking up and expressing their view and essentially being vulnerable publicly in that way. But in your research, you found that it really wasn't particularly tied to personality. Is that right? Yeah, and it's not to say that there aren't personality differences. What, it, what the research does suggest is that they are, the personality differences are swamped by the climate factor mm. right and and in fact the the on the big five personality dimensions um extroversion doesn't matter 
it turns out. Um, but neuroticism, obviously in the negative direction does, right? So if you're more neurotic, you're less likely to feel psychologically safe. That seems pretty expected. And openness is one of the big five. And you know, and that does that does have a, a, a small effect um, on psychological safety. I mean, if I'm just more open, I'm more open and I'm going to, you know, whereas I guess extroversion pertains more to uh, getting energy from interacting um, versus what I interact about, I suppose. But but um, so I, in fact, in, in one study and others have done similar work, but in one study, I had the big five personality variables. I had 26 teams in seven companies. So I was able to see of those three layers of influence on psychological safety, you know, how do they play out? And um, whereas personality explains a little bit of the variance um, and organizational differences, let's say organizational culture explains a little bit of the variance, team differences explains a lot more. Right. So, and this is that that you know statement you made when we opened, which was, we've all been on great teams, we've all been on not so great teams, and <laughs> you know, so it's not just us; it's something em- emergent about the team, and sometimes it's the team leader or the manager uh, that that exerts a larger than usual force on on everybody. Briefly, one of the points you made also in, in one of your uh, interviews that I saw. Uh, was that in a knowledge economy, knowledge is a vastly important asset and knowledge is distributed among all the people in the organization. So that's another point to the larger rationale yes. about why it's really important yes. to support a culture of, I'll call it expressiveness, uh, which requires a, a context of safety to facilitate expressiveness, right? We need people's expressions uh, in a knowledge economy. That's really well put. I mean, that's more more succinctly put than what I said. Oh. And, and <laughs> I've been studying uh, what you said. I had a chance. Thank you. The other thing about knowledge uh, that's so important is that it's, by definition, constantly growing. Hmm. And, you know, more is constantly being learned, whether in your company or in the world at large. And so um, that means that we are all very much in need of continuous learning. And if, if we're in need of continuous learning, we're in need of continuous sharing. Well, I might see something that you miss and vice versa. So um, pointing out that we're in the knowledge economy is another great way of setting the stage in such a way that says there is a rationale for why you should be willing to take the interpersonal risks of speaking up. So I think that we all have a vision in our head, uh, maybe coming from various Hollywood blockbusters or things like that, of what a high-performing team looks like at some big consulting agency or bank or something like that, kind of these traditional very high-performance environments. And I think maybe alongside that, we might have a view on a personal level of what a super productive household or a super productive relationship looks like. And for me, when I envision these things or I think about the cultural tropes more broadly, uh, they come across as very type A. Everyone's hyper-focused, maybe very good at their jobs, and honestly, maybe it's just my personality, but I'm not sure how enjoyable these things feel to me. They feel kind of stressful and intimidating. To maybe put it another kind of way, I think that culturally we might have this view that there's a bit of an inverse relationship between achievement and safety or comfort. 
essentially the more comfortable you are, the less you will achieve. But what I'm hearing from you here is that your research suggests that this isn't the case, or at least the relationship between them is a bit more complicated than that. Yes, and for sure the relationship is not at odds, right? So mm. that you know, high performance and energizing, driven teamwork is not either um, harming or in any way at odds with having psychological safety. In fact, I would argue that you need both, right? You need psychological safety to be willing to take the very real interpersonal risks of jumping in and going for it, right? You know, playing to win with your teammates. Um, and if you aren't driven and energized in some way, it's also hard to achieve high performance and really be engaged in sort of making something happen that's somewhat exciting. So, you know, I would make the very strong argument you need both. The, the whole is more than the sum of the parts, um, that they sort of have an interaction with each other. But, you know, let's back up because teams, the classic team, you know, research, and I think it's consistent with the Hollywood idea that you're suggesting. Um, and, and, and even I think we get much of our uh, mental models about teams from sports, right? We, you know, we think of great sports teams, whether it's basketball or baseball or um, you name it. Um, and there's a, there's a clarity about what the goal is. And of course, in sports, that comes with the territory, their rules, their score, their scoring, you know, there's championships. So there's a clarity about, you know, what, what we're trying to get done, at least in a overarching sense. Um, and then there's a, um, a very real uh, presence of the expertise or knowledge or skill set that you need to get that thing done together. Right? So those are, you know, those are two of the things that you mentioned, and both of those can be certainly very, um, I don't know, ambitious and hard driving, hard charging factors. Um, but more, almost, well, as important as those two, I would add, um, and I versus we, uh, you know, we versus I, or, you know, we, we versus me um, spirit, right? Because it, it, we all know the great, you know, the teams of experts that, that completely crash and burn, right? They have, they have the superstars on them, but they can't work together because everybody is such an individual that they're not capable of subsuming some part of their own ego and identity um, for the, for the, you know, the, the good of the team. And yet, you know, I think great teams have to have that. Like, I just am so excited to be on this team that I'm willing uh, to not have it be about me, right? It's about us. It's about the goal. It's about the customer, whatever it is that that team is for. Right? And so that's really the, most the, you could have the clear goal, you could have all that expertise and all that drive and ambition. But if you don't have a we um, feeling and spirit, you won't get there. Amy, what you're really talking about here is quite deep and quite personal. I mean, to use the psychological language, you're talking about a um, almost a, a, a subsuming of the ego and a yeah. movement away from individuality to maybe more of a collectivist perspective. And that's a very deep thing and yeah. maybe a very personal thing as well. So yeah, I would love to get your thoughts on how you do that, how you make people more comfortable moving away from the self and toward a broader perspective. Well, 
the most important thing is it's actually more fun, more rewarding. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, we make the mistake of thinking, I, I want to be up on that pedestal with the gold medal and that's where I'm going to be. I'm suddenly going to be happy or I want to be the top student in the class or, you know, whatever prize, get the Nobel Prize, whatever it is. Right. And that's that's the source of happiness. It's a cliche that it isn't that that doesn't work. Right. That the that um, that a fun, you know, that fundamentally selfishness feels emptier than feeling like part of a group that matters, whether that's a mm. family or a team or, a, you know, a, 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 an organization. I think we all have a deeper longing to be a part of something larger than ourselves. And where that longing can bear most fruit is when we feel safe enough to bring ourselves, right? So it's this paradox in a way, because I want you to know and appreciate me, uh, but I want to be a part of us. Mm-hmm. So it's doing that authentically, right? I can, it's not going to be, I could imagine subsuming ego completely, uh, but not feeling, if I can't feel safe to bring myself forward, it's not going, it's going to be a little bit lonely. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think that's a great framing of it. Yeah, you made a point earlier that teams that feel safe are the exception and not the rule. And so something must be done <laughs> to foster that quality right. of safety. And I had a couple of reflections along the way here on my way toward asking you, okay, what are some other factors that foster safety? Yeah. So you've named one so far, clearly. I've named only one. Yeah. kind of framing and a sense of mission relationship between the quality of safety and the goals of the organization and so forth. Uh, first point, I've, I've been thinking about how fresh what you're bringing up is in a lot of ways applied in the realm I function more in, which is families informal friend groups, uh, mm -hmm. romantic relationships. Uh, we could think of any one of those really as teams. And um, the qualities that you're talking about also can foster safety in those environments. Uh, and second, I was thinking about my own family growing up. Uh, Forrest uh, knew my, my parents who are no longer alive. Very loving people, very decent people, kind of came up out of the depression. And they were not at all abusive. And yet my family environment was not psychologically safe. It's like my parents had a monopoly on expressed anger and a whole variety of other things. And I, I think there's a category here where people might look around their organization or their relationship and say, well, it's not abusive. It's not like I'm, my boss is Darth Vader. I'm not married to Darth Vader. Right. But wow, is it not safe. So I wonder if we could talk more about that, including other qualities that people can do to, to foster this sense of safety. This is so important. And I think I grew up in the same family, so I won't maybe. <laughs> it was in West Covina, <laughs> Southern California for me. <laughs> they say in my field, uh, in social psychology, especially that all research is me yeah. you know, that you're, this is what gets you interested in something is that lack of, of safety. So again, you know, you can, you can be in an environment that looks very good and is really truly nothing abusive, but feel very, um, unsafe in terms of expressing your true thoughts or your true self in some and in wishes some way, because and your true self and needs yeah and, and they seem yeah. you you might think there's something about your true self that's either not good enough or not um you know generous enough you know that that your selfishness is is you know unacceptable um or something anyway 
Um, um, so yes, so I think it's um, uh, such an important point. And, and, and also uh, the most of the environments I have studied, most of the work environments I've studied are not with, you know, abusive bosses. They do exist. I've seen them. I've studied them. But, you know, most bosses are just following a playbook that seems natural and might even seem to be described in the, you know, old management textbooks of old. Um, and, and, but even the ones who think of themselves as very interested in what others' thoughts may fail to recognize that your belief that that's who you are isn't necessarily going to be seen by others who report to you because they have their own mental models of what boss means, which they bring from their family of origin, from their prior jobs, right? So the very fact that you're my boss leads me to be a little bit afraid of you, even though you've never done anything scary, right? And so we, you know, we bring the baggage. Um, and the baggage is at odds with success in a knowledge environment, knowledge economy. So, um, so this is. I think that, I'm so glad you brought this up because, you know, when if people listen or read my work or listen to this program, you know, they could eat. Oh well, that's sort of interesting about other people, but it doesn't apply to me. It applies to all of us. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it applies. To, I it was I was um, a tenured faculty member before I realized that. A doctoral student could be, you know, intimidated by me because I don't think of myself as intimidating at all. So, right, you just but the position or the success or the whatever the the role comes with its own with its own baggage. So, what does that mean? That means that managers have to, in order, if you know, if you're if you're sincere about creating an environment where ideas are heard, you know, critiques are revealed in time to do something useful um, with them and so forth, um, you have to do more than just set the stage. You literally have to go out of your way to issue invitations routinely for voice, um, by which I mean, <laughs> in ordinary English, ask questions, you know, ask good questions. And you, you know, as a, as a clinician, you know what I mean by a good question, because a good question isn't a yes no question it isn't a leading question like i'm right right it's not a prosecutorial question do you realize what a mess you made here <laughs> right right exactly <laughs> you know or you know when did you stop beating your wife right it's it's a so a good question <laughs> is one that says amy i have to interrupt you i know right now forrest yeah. is having a moment where he's reviewing about 10 interactions with me in which i asked the wrong question <laughs> well haven't we all i mean well, hello <laughs> <laughs> no one's immune. You know, job one is admit, acknowledge that you're a fallible human being. Each Absolutely. and every one of us is a fallible human being. And that's, if everybody was aware of that and was explicit about that, I think we'd have a whole lot of psychological safety. Well, you actually, I'm going to build on what you just said right there and kind of say it back to you. Uh, you use this phrase, embrace the messenger. And that's such a wonderful phrase, including the messenger of bad news or a messenger of a critique about oneself as a leader. And then yeah. also, um, you know, model fallibility. Yeah. Embrace the messenger is a deliberate play on words around the old phrase that we all know, shoot the messenger. You know, don't shoot the messenger, which is meant to say that, you know, just the bearer of bad news or there's something in our you know, brains that immediately cause us to kind of blame the messenger rather than focus on the message. You know, the message is important, let's get to it. 
right? But the messenger is not at fault. And in fact, the messenger, so I, I like to say, you know, um, don't shoot the messenger is a very low bar. You know, you're sort of saying the poor, the poor messenger gets to stay alive, you know, whereas I think the messenger deserves your thanks, right? You know, so embrace is metaphorical. Of course, we don't advocate hugging uh, random people at work, but... Um, <laughs> You don't live in California, obviously. Yeah, well, I, you know, I get it. I came from New York, but I, you know, I came from a world and a workplace where everybody hugged everybody. But nowadays, we have to be a little careful about that. But yeah, so you have to be, um, you have to kind of program yourself to genuinely, you know, force yourself to genuinely appreciate that data for what it is. You know, it's a treasure. You know, you'd rather have good news than bad. Everybody would, and you'd rather have bad quickly uh, so that you can do something about it. So how can a leader be both a leader with authority uh, yeah. in different environments? Um, and also often people rise to the level of leaders because they know stuff, they can do stuff. Right. While at the same time, um, modeling fallibility. To me, that just goes back to your favorite, whether whether you like the you know the, the VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. If we actually live in that, you are not even you know rational if you don't realize you you're fallible. You're you know you're fallible. So fallibility can be is impersonal in a sense, which is great. It's, it's not a fault. Exactly. It's just no. It's not a. In fact, yeah. It's anything but a fault. It's just a fact. It's a fact because you don't have a crystal ball. This is great. No one does. So you, you know, that's a fact. So you have to learn to embrace it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of, it's situational, it's factual, it's part of, it's part of the reality thing again. Um, and, um, and, and then, or so fellow, you know, uh, VUCA world and, or again, knowledge explosion as, as, as knowledge continues to grow exponentially. What that means is that even with your, for example, your very real expertise, um, over time, it necessarily narrows, right? Because the, the knowledge in your field just keeps growing. And so you can't just be like a psychologist. You end up being a family systems psychologist mm -hmm. who then specializes in, you know, um, alcoholic families or something. Like I'm making this up, right? But it's um, so that means, so that's okay. Like very deep expertise is a powerful and important tool, but most of the problems that we have to solve don't come in a vacuum or a silo where you only need one form of expertise to solve them. I mean, most of the problems are multiple. That is so interesting. You're in effect pointing out that the cultivation of deep, expertise in a particular slot in a larger VUCA world, a world that's changing and dynamic, actually inherently leads to a certain kind of fallibility. Yes, exactly. Because wow. I know my stuff really well, but I don't know- Outside your slot, I know you're your fallible. Stuff, yeah, I don't know outside my slot. And then it turns out the thing we're being asked to solve, you know, diabetes prevention, social work, me, you know, medicine and endocrinology, pharmacies, you know, all, all of Food that policy, stuff has to yeah. come together, exercise and nutrition. And we need to bring, we need to not only bring all those different hats together, but we need to 
truly, you know, value and understand each other. And, you know, you've got your personal trainer doesn't necessarily come from the same tribe as your MD. And then you talk about how leaders and people in general need to ask for forgiveness because we are fallible. And again, it's hard to think about the classic model of, you know, theory X organizations yeah. where leaders are asking for forgiveness. My parents, uh, lovely people, never admitted fault. Uh, they, you know, and that creates a certain environment, for example. It was part of the training, you know, it was part of the upbringing. Yeah. And, and it is, was part of that, you know, talk about Hollywood, part of that mental model that, you know, you grew up watching the movies where the, the leaders were the all-knowing, all-seeing. Yeah, as a strong leader, you never admit that you made a mistake. Right. Except it doesn't work, right? I mean, because we, we all, we're all watching that leader and just saying, no, right? That's so, mm -hmm. um, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, after the uh, Bay of Pigs fiasco, um, went on national TV um, to, to own it. And to say, I, you know, basically, I, I am sorry it was my failure, my fault. Um, and and McNamara had said uh, to him, uh, "Hey, I'll take, you know, no, you're the president. We got to protect your, you know, reputation. I'll take it, right? You know, I'll 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 fall on the sword." And he said, "No, you know, fair, you know, success has many parents. Uh, failure is an orphan. This one's mine, right? And 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 when leaders do that." they actually look strong, right? Because they're able, they're big enough to acknowledge and, and something that we all knew anyway. Yeah, that was pretty stupid, you know? But if you don't acknowledge it, then, then there's a kind of inference that you don't even understand you're contributing to it. So I think that we've gone down a wonderfully deep uh, rabbit hole here in terms of the <laughs> psychosocial aspects of all of this. And I don't know, maybe a continuation of that, maybe a little bit of a detour. People are increasingly, as we are right now, due to the circumstances, meeting through Zoom and conducting meetings and doing business through various telecommunication devices. And as you know far better than I do, there was already a big movement to this inside of the workplace. But I think there's no doubt that the pandemic has absolutely accelerated this process. How do any of the things that we've talked about during this conversation uh, change or are impacted or are modified by having to do all of this through a screen? Well, the first thing to recognize is it's inherently harder to feel a sense or to create a sense of psychological safety in a virtual team than in a face-to-face -face team because it is darn near impossible to kind of read the welcoming cues. Those just those subtle things where people are nodding or or um, even just making sounds, uh, small sounds of agreement that's quite natural, but you can't hear it either if people are on mute or even if they're not, it's just not, it's not that good. And there's slight delays that make us less, you know, less, um, we have less access to these cues, right? The cues of belonging, the cues of, of it's okay. And so, so yeah, there are real risks here of losing psychological safety, even without all the stuff that's going on in the broader environment, which threatens um, our general sense of, uh, of, of, of confidence. And, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, ang we're, we're anxious in general about what's going to happen with the, with the disease, with the, 
with the economy. So um, what that means is there is an even greater need and even responsibility to work harder to create psychological safety, to create the invitation uh, for for people's input, uh, to kind of have have that dialogue and, and that back and forth where people can uh, can contribute and feel a part of something. I wanted to, to ask you about a couple other potential factors of that foster psychological safety, in addition to what we've talked about so far, a sense of frame, uh, embracing messengers, uh, acknowledging fallibility, asking for forgiveness. And I thought about my own experience uh, with families and relationships where there's an emphasis on validation. And you haven't spoken about that as a factor of psychological safety. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. Of yeah. course, your work's mainly in organizational environments. And then another kind of question I had is, what do you do with people who disrupt psychological safety in yeah. teams? So two different questions. First one, yes. Uh, I, I think it's um, very important to validate the effort, right? Because even, even, you, you know, even when you're in a really truly great team, there's still a little bit of like well, maybe this maybe this won't land right right so I you know I say something and if if you know if the if the response is oh, that's stupid right I'm gonna feel bad no matter you know who I am but if the response is well that's interesting or um, or even I'll get to your second question or even let's take that offline that's let's you know important not here not now but but i i think it's very quick and very important to just be appreciative however whatever that means you know thank you ah expression of interest listening maybe maybe kind of are you saying whatever just that that you matter that's the only thing that that's the only message that must get across i don't have to agree with you or take what you said as you know mission critical to this particular task but i need to make sure i indicate in some small way whether i'm a peer or a manager uh that you matter right now um that does not mean that we are uh that anyone in fact is exempt from the need for feedback about the impact they're having you mm-hmm. know the the old johari window right where it's where there's um there's essentially um, very high awareness of my intentions by, by me, right? I know what my intentions are. And by the way, they're good always, right? <laughs> um, but I am almost necessarily blind or at least partially blind to the impact I have. So if, you know, if you have someone who's blind, you help them across the street. So why would we, you know, if someone is being disrupted, I'd say, you know, 99 times out of 100, they didn't mean to be disruptive. Like they didn't come in to sabotage the meeting, right? But they just, they talk too much or they suck all the air out of the room or whatever it is. But you at least have to start with the assumption that they're blind to the negative impact they're having, which means they need and deserve your feedback. I'm not going to come out with a blanket prescription on where and when you do that. It can be right here, right now. Like, thanks, Rick. Um, let's, Let's hear from others, right? Or it can be interesting. Maybe we'll take that offline. Or it can be, you know, whatever it is. Or if it's, you know, recurring, when you say you've got people who are disruptive, I think you've got to schedule a little bit of time to help them see that. Because your job is to make them better. 
you know, and you, I think your job is to make them better, whether you're their manager or their peer, or even their subordinate. Sometimes, you know, if you can find a way to um, share insight that they don't have, um, you've got to find it. Amy, there's a question that we ask most everyone who comes on the podcast. I'm really curious what your answer to it is, given all of your work on psychological safety and related factors. What's the most important thing that you do inside your own mind each day for your own well-being? Wow. That's a great question. And it's probably, um, and I don't do it very well, but um, it, it's, it, I think it's, um, it's for, forgiveness. I get help from mm. friends or sometimes others, but um, um, I, I think it is so important to be able to forgive myself for all the mistakes I make and, you know, but, you know, but interpersonal mistakes, you know, again, uh, saying something hurtful or sarcastic when that wasn't necessary or, or, you know, whether laziness, not getting something done, I thought I should get done, whatever it is. Like if you, uh, you can, um, I can easily feel crippled by my shortcomings and then that's a kind of a downward, downward spiral, I suppose. So I work at letting myself off the hook. And that's a little bit with the fallible, where the fallible human being mantra comes from. You know, I've got to, um, it's absolutely okay that I'm a fallible human being, like everybody else is a fallible human being. That's really touching. Um, so Forrest and I wrote a book together called resilient and uh one of the you know elements in it so it's about 12 psychological factors within individuals 12 we could say inner strengths that promote resilience actually um in the meeting of our needs and the maintenance of a kind of a core of well-being even as one copes with challenges and recovers from losses and traumas and setbacks mm -hmm. so what helps us be resilient and one of the things we explored in that was the internalization of of sort of inner allies, inner resources who are forgiving, encouraging, uh, kind, compassionate for ourselves, just through normal processes of internalization right. of interactions with other people. And I kind of loosely call it the caring committee, and because I'm quite fanciful <laughs> in my imagination, it has yeah, characters yeah. on the caring committee right. like Gandalf and the fairy godmother and Sleeping Beauty and, <laughs> and sort of odd characters, rock climbing guides I've had, uh, things like that, who are just really supportive and, and we draw upon right. that. And, and in a funny kind of way to extend this, uh, if we think about the, the fearless organization, the mind in a sense is an organization. And so we can ask what promotes internal safety inside our own experience, right? And including the capacity for embracing different parts of ourselves, uh, recognizing that we're functioning in a crazy chaotic world, so of course we need new information. And we need to regulate that which disrupts internal safety in, in the psyche, and also do those things that uh, you know foster the sense of safety inside oneself, like you're talking about, like self-forgiveness. Yeah. The word that comes to mind when you were talking is is um, is judgmental and you know anti-judgmental because I think I think that might be the Achilles heel that I sort of internalized and grew up with and it makes me very judgmental and the judgment isn't was you know isn't necessarily on um, ability or or accomplishment but on on 
generosity and goodness and you know non-selfishness but but if you if you have a little judge inside your head that's always you know self-judging and other judging mm. it's a very um uh you know non-flourishing state uh for sure so if if that caring you know the caring committee is a fantastic metaphor because they're not judgmental right they could well be supportive they can be discerning exactly yeah. right yeah they can they can say, yeah, you messed up, but we love you, right? Yeah, it's okay. It's really important. So, Amy, you've made reference uh, a number of times during this conversation to your childhood and to, you know, growing up and what that might have been like for you and household environments and things like that. And that reminds me of a question that we'd like to ask most everyone who comes on the podcast. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to yourself as a child or as a young adult, um, what would you want to say to that person? Maybe you are loved. I mean, mm. Mm. you know, I, I don't think, well, your dad might be better. I, I don't know if you have children, but it's, you know, you don't really understand how much your parents love you for all their flaws or, you know, I'm not saying mine had so many, but they, they you don't really understand the depth of that love until you have yeah. uh, your own children. And then you have to live with the reality or, you know, that they, they won't ever understand it either, you know, and they look at us and think, okay, anyway. I think that that was really lovely, Amy, and thank you for being open about that and for for sharing that. And just speaking personally, uh, as you sort of alluded to earlier, I don't have uh, children, and so I don't have that relationship with a child in the same way that my dad has with me. And you know, I had the good fortune of growing up in an environment where my dad was a clinical psychologist. Right, right, right. And these were conversations that we had around the dinner table. Um, but even so, even if I might know it intellectually, it's really good to have a reminder every now and then and to really to really feel that love, to really feel the source of that affection uh, from another person and to know that I have that as a resource in my life. Oh, it's been really a pleasure to talk with you. And this topic of fearlessness, I just think is profound. And it's profound in our culture these days uh, in many kinds of ways, I think, of factors that undermine the sense of safety, including through social media. Uh, Forrest has talked a lot about how we see the highlight reels of other people's lives against which we compare right. our, the full movie right. of our own life, of our warts own. and all. Absolutely. And um, I'm reminded as well by this parable from uh, this proverb, rather, from the Buddhist tradition that one is wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. <laughs> really? Yeah. How wonderful. I don't know that. Yeah. That's great. So before we get you out of here, Amy, is there anything you would like people to know about? Anything you're currently working on? Well, I'm 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 at least gearing up uh to write a little bit more about failure, maybe book on you know, good failure, um, what that what that really means. Um, so that's kind of fun. All right, Amy, truly, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. You're very welcome. Thank you. It was a, it was a genuine pleasure. I mean, I could talk to the, the the two of you all day. So thank you. So today we had a great time speaking with Dr. Amy Edmondson. Our conversation focused on psychological safety and how psychological safety applies to both our work lives and our personal lives. We really kind of went down the psychological rabbit hole a little bit there. Uh, going into the conversation, I thought that we would probably focus more on work. But by the end of it, we were really exploring a wide variety of topics. For me, one of the big takeaways from the conversation was the importance of demonstrating fallibility 
and creating a work environment or a play environment or a relationship environment, whatever it is, where it's really okay to be wrong, where somebody feels like they aren't going to be punished harshly for expressing a view if that view turns out to be wrong in some way. Our focus with Amy was maybe more organizational, but I think about all the ways that that applies to our personal lives, and there are so many ways that that applies to our personal lives. I'd like to remind you about Amy's book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. If you're interested in learning more about it, I've included a link in the description of today's episode. I'd also like to remind you about today's sponsor, BetterHelp. You can go to betterhelp.com beingwell, or just enter the code beingwell at checkout to let them know that you came from us. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd also like to remind you to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, finally, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for less than the cost of a couple of cups of coffee a month, you can receive a variety of great benefits from the show, including expanded show notes that I put a lot of work into, uh, ad-free episodes, special bonus episodes, a Q&A that Rick and I do each month. There's really a lot there. So all that said, thanks for taking the time to listen. There are a lot of different things that you can listen to these days, and we really appreciate that you spent some time with us. 